This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And... The Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Ritchie, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. And in the mountains of Utah, our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. Are you on a snowboard right now or a chairlift? <laughs> or? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm on a snowboard and a chairlift, uh, and um, I have ski poles. It, it, it's a really actually quite a sight. You're in a, a downhill remake, I guess. <laughs> Already yeah. remaking downhill. Yeah. Um, you also you posted a really ominous looking picture of the mountains on Instagram today. So uh, I hope the mountains let you go home at some point. <laughs> oh, <laughs> there does see, there is a slight sense of malevolence emanating from the mountains this year at Sundance. <laughs> I'm afraid. Um, maybe that was why I took that photo to capture that essence. And so yeah, follow me on Instagram, everybody. <laughs> yeah, get get the sense of the mountains that might kill you. Um, so we're gonna we're gonna pick uh, Richard's brain about Sundance so far, which is. Uh, ongoing as we record this, uh, and we're going to talk about uh, one of my favorite things we get to do all year, the Oscar-nominated shorts, which, once again, are quite a journey into human darkness, although mm-hmm. I would argue not as depressing as last year's crop, but uh, but we can talk about that. Uh, and then we have two interviews as well. We have Joanna talking to Cheryl Chiquetto, who is the organizer of the Governor's Ball, which is uh, one of the big parties that happen after the Oscars, not the big party hosted by Vanity Fair, but, you know, you do your best. Um, and then uh, Johanna Dessa, our colleague, is talking to Cynthia Arrivo, who is a Best Actress nominee for her role in Harriet. So getting in the Oscar hopefuls, because uh, by the time you listen to the next week's episode, Oscar voting will be closed. It's going to be over really fast. So it's exciting to get to talk to a couple people before that happens. Anyway, Richard, Sundance. Um, I saw that our colleague Mark Harris tweeted something about, like, if you tweet about Oscar buzz from Sundance, you are part of the problem you claim to think is a problem. But, uh, hey, Richard, what's the Oscar buzz out of Sundance? Because <laughs> I, I don't think it's a problem, so I, I don't complain about it. I don't either. It, you know. um, I'm not sure Mark does either. I think he's mostly complaining about people who complain about it. Right. <laughs> um, I, I'll be honest, it has not been my favorite year at Sundance, just in terms of what I've seen. Um, there are plenty of things that people say are great that I have missed and maybe we'll get to catch up with later this week. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's felt like a little bit of an off year for me. Um, but that said, I have seen a handful of things that I think are really great and that have 
awardsy potential. I think probably the biggest one was uh, The Father, which is directed by first-time director Florian Zeller, who uh, adapted from his own very successful stage play that was won a bunch of awards and played in New York and Europe. And um, and it's about Alzheimer's, so it's really cheery, as you can imagine. Hmm. Um, but it's a really fascinating film that sort of attempts to put you in the head of the person suffering from Alzheimer's in that, like, things keep changing and, and, and you kind of, it's very disorienting and you don't really know where or when you are or who is in the room at any given time. It's, I mean, it's not like inscrutable. It's just like, it's just very smartly done and uh, aided all the more so by the central performance by Anthony Hopkins, which is an incredible feat of acting, uh, especially for someone, you know, in, I believe his 80s, just so committed, so dialed in. And I just, you know, I, I saw that with a colleague and we were walking out of the Eccles Theater back to our respective Airbnbs and we were just like, that is, he's going to win Best Actor next year. Like, wow. It, I mean, it'll be the 30th anniversary of Sounds of the Lambs. Like, you know, he got nominated this year. I don't think he's going to win, but that gives him a little momentum. Um, and he's just, it's just, there's such a narrative to him winning something like that, you know, so many, you know, three decades after winning for Silence of the Lambs. So, does I mean, it have uh, a distributor? Uh, yeah, it's Sony Pictures Classics. Oh, okay. Um, so it went, came in with the distributor, and it just looks really great. Olivia Coleman uh, plays his daughter, uh, and she's great too. Um, Olivia Williams, Rufus Sewell, uh, Mark Gaddis, you know, so it's, it's got a good supporting cast. It's mostly Coleman and Hopkins, though, and really then mostly Hopkins. I went in expecting it to be a sentimental kind of family drama, weepy, of the kind that you sometimes see here. But instead, I, as I called it on Twitter, it's like a British version of Amour, the Michael Haneke movie. Oh, God. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's exciting, though. I mean, Anthony Hopkins, the fact that he only has one Oscar, you're like, oh, yeah, he deserves another one. It's like weird that he can feel overdue at this point um, to get very well ahead of ourselves. You know, I think he's good on Westworld, but like doesn't seem to be like doing the hardest work of his career, like in the Thor movies. It's exciting to see him like really go for something like that. Yeah, I think it's a really nice reminder of how good an actor who has become kind of known for his particular idiosyncrasies and tics, like a, a reminder of of what made him be able to rest on those laurels. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, like it's like seeing a really good Pacino performance at this point. It's like it's he's not doing the shtick that's so easy. You know, that the kind of joke that um, our friends on Blank Check always talk about is that Anthony Hopkins, when he looks at scripts, in the latter part of his career is he would like flip pages and write, you know, um, I think like NAR on each one, like no acting required. And that was appealing to him because he could just kind of do it on autopilot. Here he is really committing to a performance and um, it pays off quite well. I am writing on a post-it, January 28th, Richard shoots his (laughs) shot on Tony Hopkins winning the Oscar. <laughs> He'll at least get nominated. I keep sure. saying I'm going to start keeping a, a document of uh, Oscar buzz, so I'm going to I'm going to write this down too. <laughs> uh, that's really exciting. That that sounds great, and what a great a murderer's row of, of British talent. Th- that film at least sounds like it's going to clean up at the Baftas. Uh, mm. So you know, amazing. Richard, what else caught your eye? Well, another movie with uh, some great male performances uh, was a movie called Worth from the director Sarah Colangelo, who had a movie at Sundance a couple years ago called The Kindergarten Teacher, which was an adaptation of an Israeli movie uh, starring a wonderful Maggie Gyllenhaal. That movie did not get near the attention it deserved, I think, because Netflix kind of buried it. I believe they bought it at Sundance in 2018. So anyway, so Colangelo is back with her new film, and it's a kind of a departure from her last stuff in that it's like a very solid procedure process 
you know, movie about a real life thing. In this case, the um, the 9-11 uh, Victims Fund, uh, the September 11th Victims Fund, um, which was established pretty much like two months after the attacks, um, almost 20 years ago, in that the government didn't want the victims' families to sue the airlines because they were worried that would tank the economy. And so they basically created a socialist program of government money to give out in terms of you know damages and, and, and compensation for the lives lost and, and, and injured people. Um, and it was like a $7 billion fund and they really needed to figure out how to best dole out that money and like, you know, who deserved what amount based on projected lifetime earnings and all that stuff. So enter Michael Keaton's character, who is a lawyer and a professional sort of arbiter, mediator about the kind of just giving out damages and funds and all that stuff, um, which sounds kind of dry, but it somehow isn't. And Colangelo just has this real humanist touch to it. We hear from a lot of um, the victims' families played by actors. Stanley Tucci is one of those uh, people, and he's incredible in a really great supporting role. Amy Ryan is great. Um, Laura Benanti, the theater actress, is spectacular in a supporting performance as a firefighter's widow. And it's just kind of a talky, emotional movie with some complicated politics. And I, I, I did not think I was going to love it, and I, just, I was really taken by it. It, you, but the way you talk about it as a cineast movie that's kind of like talky but serious and about summer topics, like the, it, it reminds me of The Report. I don't know if it really mm-hmm. feels like that movie at all, but it, does it feel like kind of that same space maybe? I think it has that same vibe, yeah, except for the fact that The Report is, you know, by design and I think successfully so, kind of cold and technical, you know, mm-hmm. um, very much about that sort of just trying to get to the facts kind of thing. Yeah. Whereas Worth is inherently, because of what it is, it's trying to put a monetary sum on the loss of a person. Um, it has to get into the emotional aspect of things. And I think it's really interesting the way the movie sets up emotion and this kind of you know, kind of technical negotiation in dialogue with each other and, and how they clash and how they can kind of be reconciled by the end. And that's the, the project of the movie and the project of the character played by Keaton. And Keaton, while he doesn't get, like, you know, the big yelling scene or whatever, the Oscar reel scene, um, which I think is a credit to Colangelo um, and, and Max Bornstein, who wrote the script, that there isn't that kind of histrionics, Keaton still really, really just... I was captured by what he's doing. It's so human and credible and and detailed. And I don't know, it's like maybe my favorite performance of his. Richard, also, it didn't occur to me until you were talking that Stanley Tucci and Michael Keaton were both in Spotlight, um, which maybe mm-hmm. is another fair... Although I don't think Spotlight was the sunniest movie, so maybe a slightly different space. But um, that's not a bad, um, you know, predecessor to look toward. Yeah, I'll be curious to see what happens with Worth because as we're recording on Tuesday morning um, here, uh, it has not been sold yet. There have been a lot of big sales at the festival that started kind of slow and then all of a sudden there were a bunch of big buys. But Worth is one of them that hasn't been picked up yet. And I was talking with um, a couple colleagues after we saw it and that seems like one that a studio could buy. Like Mm. we could see Warner's buying it or Paramount. And if that's the case, then they're going to give it a... I mean, they will have the resources to give it a real Oscar push, kind of in a way that Amazon didn't do for the report. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll be curious to see if it can kind of do a spotlight thing and, and really make an impact um, next year. Let's pause and talk about sales for a second, um, because you you haven't seen Palm Springs, which is kind of the big sales story that's out right now, where it's sold yeah. to uh, Hulu and Neon for like $18.5 million and 69 cents. like 17.5 and 69 cents, yeah, which makes it the biggest sale ever at Sundance. 
Which I never in a million years would have thought that someone would be setting sales records at Sundance this year. I think I right. talked about last year about how it just didn't seem like the way to go forward anymore. But then again, Neon is riding incredibly high after a really successful award season and backing Parasite. So I don't like, is the word in town that this is a good idea? Well, I think that Palm Springs was not high on a lot of people's priority lists. And certainly critics have seen it. And like David Sims from The Atlantic loved it. Uh, a couple other people I've spoken to really liked it. So I'm excited. It's my last movie here. I'm glad that I sort of accidentally had it on my schedule. Um, but yeah, that kind of number, which is, you know, the sense is, is important. They added to make it the biggest sale, I guess. Kind of, I don't know why you'd want that to be your bragging rights, but... Um, and I guess it's... I, I'm guessing the tone of the comedy makes 69 just... Funny. Oh, That's sure. Right. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that like, especially given that Amazon last year bought a really expensive comedy in Britney Runs a Marathon and then spent a lot of money on Late Night and both of those didn't really do anything in the theaters. Who knows how they're doing on, on streaming? Um, yeah. But yeah, like you said, like no one was really expecting those kind of numbers to be posted this year. And, you know, it it wasn't just Palm Springs. There have been other sort of healthy sales, um, which I think, you know, gives the festival a little bit of a shot of adrenaline because I think for over the first weekend, which is the big, you know, the big kind of couple days for the festival, like things were kind of quiet on that front. Uh, and I think people were thinking like, ooh, like what's going on this year? But now they're, you know, the, the, the economy of it seems to have picked up. I'm very curious to see if Neon has the ability to, like, revive the, like, not studio comedy, but, like, the theatrically released comedy. And maybe Hulu is, like, a key part of this, that, like, they can see this movie, like, live on on their platform forever and ever. But it's been so long since there's been any anything resembling a breakout comedy. And Andy Samberg's theatrical comedy career isn't that robust. But, like, you can imagine something, like, if it goes and makes $20 million in a slow release the way that, like, you know, a very different movie about The Farewell did, um, maybe that counts as success. I, I, you know, I would love for this to be a kind of summer success story because I think we could use one of those this year. Yeah, I mean, 824, you know, obviously their acquisition and and distribution tastes have been like top notch and and this signal of quality. Neon is is a little um newer on the scene, but when you look at what they backed this year, they sent out this little screener like binder, right? Not like individual mailers, but a little like portfolio of like this is what we backed and it's a lot of like they had a really not just parasite, just like a really great year. And so Yeah, it's such that that book is such a brag. Yeah. Like, here's all our stuff. Yeah. Oh, look. It's uh, uh, one hit after another, and then oh, this other movie's here. Um, but like, y- yeah. So I, I think this is such a move, and of course you put the sixty nine cents on there because then you get the headlines of like biggest sale, and you know it's not like it's not just bragging rights. It's like cutting through the noise and being like, all right, we're all talking about this movie because of those added sixty nine cents sort of thing. So um, yeah. I think it's, it's very clever. I mean, I, you know, we'll see if if the, if the movie thrives outside of the, you know, the Sundance bubble hype. But um, I, I think that's an interesting move from Neon. Yeah, comedies are so famously, like, I think the biggest indicators of the Sundance bubble hype, like so many of them, like for every Little Miss Sunshine, there's just a zillion comedies that worked at Sundance that completely fall apart. But also, it's impossible not to root for Neon at this point. And I I don't, I don't know where you guys land on Andy Samberg. I always root for him, too. So I'm, I'm down. Yeah, and Kristen Milioti is great. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I'm eager to see it. Um, another big sale to keep an eye on, and I don't know that I don't have the number in front of me, but 
Roadside Attractions and Lionsgate, which partially owns Roadside, bought Ironbark, which is the big British spy drama starring Benedict Cumberbatch that premiered here on Friday. And is it that all- really feels like a made up? Yeah, I know. I, well, well, that, I mean, that's the funny thing is like between Ironbark and Worth, like these are not typically very Sundancey movies, and yet here they are, um, mm-hmm. kind of making a lot of noise. And I, I didn't see Ironbark because I said, well, that's not really what you come to Sundance for. You know, I can see that later. I can see that in Toronto. But, you know, everyone's really crowing about Cumberbatch and I'm not inside his brain, but I think Cumberbatch has been a little bit hungry for an Oscar for a while, doing a lot of, you know, serious biopics. And, and so here comes another one. Um, How dare you say that about the current war? <laughs> I forgot about the current war. I was just referring to uh, the <laughs> Imitation Game and the um, the Julian Assange one. But yes, right. also that. Yeah. <laughs> Um, apparently the, the numbers of the sale were not in variety. Um, so I I assume it's not $17.5 million, but, um, you know, probably expensive too. Um, should we talk about a movie that has a studio coming into Sundance that I feel like, I mean, so the trailer for Promising Young Woman came out a couple weeks ago and people were like, oh my God, I'm paying attention to this. Like Carrie Mulligan is someone who broke out so big with an education, I think, which also played at Sundance. Um, and, did, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, we've been kind of like waiting for her next big thing after that. Uh, it's a focus release. It's already scheduled to come out in April. Um, did it work for you as well as it worked for a lot of people, Richard? I will say she worked for me very well. Um, the mm-hmm. movie itself is entertaining, but I think a bit um, erratic. It's a bit uneven in its kind of tone. Um, and some of that's deliberate and it's handled well. But other times you're like, I don't really get what is this arch comedy? Is this so like dark satire? I don't really it kind of is, feels a little muddled, but undeniably Carrie Mulligan is incredible in the movie and it's the kind of role I don't remember seeing her do before where she's this kind of avenging you know force kind of pushing back against toxic men um but also a grieving person and a, you know wounded person and a person who is kind of looking for love and which arrives in the form of a very very charming Bo Burnham which is kind of an interesting uh you know after eighth grade I was not sure if he was really going to be acting much but um here he is in this but yeah Mulligan is funny and scary and really you know empathetic um it's a really exciting performance that does not you know does not lag at all um as the movie goes along even as the movie kind of hits some bumps so it's really exciting i i think one thing to kind of caveat with is the trailer makes it look like one thing and it's not really that it's a cleverly cut trailer to kind of attract people but into the theater but i'm not sure how they're going to feel walking out you know what i mean there's a there's an ending that i think will be polarizing so, you know, it was a it was a big buzzy hit here for sure, but I'm curious how Focus is going to handle it in the actual release. Um, we'll have to wait and see. This is a film um, written and directed by Emerald Fennell, who took over for Phoebe Waller-Bridge in the second um, season of Killing Eve, played Camilla uh, in The Crown, this most, uh, the latest season of The Crown. Um, and it's just like one of those multi-hyphenates that I am completely obsessed with. Well, and she's become, it's like, I went from not knowing who she was to her being literally everywhere in like six months. Right, right, yeah. So um, I'm excited for this, for her. This is this is a cool thing for her, you know, uh, to have a really buzzy Sundance film. So, yeah. I don't know if, um, just by the release date and the topic, like, is this going to be a South By movie too? Like one of the ones that comes up there and like gets midnight screenings going or is it not that kind of movie? Oh, it's for sure that kind of movie. I don't know if it will, okay. but like, no, it's 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 genre. It's It's got a political point, but it's also fun. But also grim, you know. It's it's a mix of things that 
and it worked for the most part, I think. But, you know, I, I walked out of the screening and some other colleagues were like, really, they were like a perfect movie. And I was like, ah, not quite. A perfect performance, though, I think for sure from Mulligan. It's also interesting that Focus has another movie here that is also about women's experience in the world, but in a very different tone, which is Eliza Hittman's um, Never Rarely, Sometimes Always, which is mm. a very austere, tiny drama about a teenage girl trying to get an abortion that is fantastically well done, but also it's like, going to be incredibly hard to sell. And I'm just like, focus, you've put a lot on your plate uh, in 2020, yeah. but good for them for doing it, honestly. I was just going to point out, maybe also an unfair comparison, but I believe Get Out also premiered at Sundance mm-hmm. and then yeah. went to South by before becoming this massive springtime genre hit. So I don't know if that's yeah. the road they're trying to take with Promising Young Woman. Yeah, but Get Out, like, premiered, Get Out dropped really late at South by, so it wasn't like part of it, like... The the buzz around Get Out at South by was like Sundance already did this buzz if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there have been films that have built on the momentum that they started at Sundance with South by. It's like a one two hit uh, or whatever. It's interesting to me, like looking at. It, I, I I was thinking yesterday. I was like, what had buzz last year at Sundance that is still in the awards conversation? And like, unfortunately, the farewell. You know, we all know what happened there and that came like so close. But that that was the closest like narratively, right, that anything mm-hmm. came. And then like it seems like docu like documentaries maybe did a bit better. But overall, I was just sort of like, is that direct from Sundance to the Oscar buzz even sustainable anymore? Um, and I don't know if you have any thoughts about that, Richard. I think it's definitely sustainable. I think it's just there. It it's not doesn't happen every year, you know. Right, right. Um, it's, it happened with Call Me by Your Name a couple of years ago. You know, it happened with Manchester by the Sea. Manchester, you yeah. Know, yeah. Like mm-hmm. it, it it does happen with with in the past decade, especially when we've had um, an expanded roster of, of potentially ten Best Picture nominees. It's maybe been about half the time there's been a Best Picture nominee from Sundance. So it's not like the most predictive thing. And I think the farewell was kind of a surprise that it didn't uh, make it all the way. Uh, right. Or something mm-hmm. like eighth grade not getting you know a best picture nomination when, uh. it, when it won uh, when it got nominated in all the other guilds you know that, yeah. that year so so we'll see this year I mean I, I feel, I'm feeling most strongly about uh, acting performances another one would be Elizabeth Moss and Shirley about Shirley Jackson though that yeah, I wanted to bring that, that up. is a tricky movie it's it's not too far away from her smell which failed to get Moss any real awards traction uh, this past or in 2019. Uh, so we'll see, but, um, it doesn't feel like the most Oscar year, but like, who knows? What, not what, that that, what, I mean, you know? that's not uh, by any means, not the only metric of value no. of, a, of a film. No, I was just, not. I was just thinking about it. I was like, did I, I was like, this is a year where like, we didn't have a film that just kept chugging. You know what I mean? Yeah. Maybe that's what makes a neon and Hulu smart is that they're not going for the Oscar buzz or going for what looks like a big crowd pleaser instead. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wanted to ask about Shirley um, because you reviewed it with Promising Young Woman kind of as a tandem review and talking about Elizabeth Moss. Like I, having seen Madeline's Madeline, I'm really curious about Josephine Decker making a biopic, sort of. It's maybe a lot less traditional than what you might expect. Yeah, so I think it's based on a novel that sort of speculates about Shirley Jackson's life. Um, and, And, you know, before she introduced the film, Josephine Decker was like, Oh, it's fiction, by the way. Like she was like she was careful to be like this is not <laughs> supposed to be a literal, you know, sort of earnest thing about Shirley Jackson, who you know had a troubled life despite you know her her many talents and successes as an author. Um, so it's yeah, it's 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 really a movie uh, about I think women kind of trying to find 
a sense of liberation and and an agency in a world governed by men, which you know was certainly true. 70-ish years ago when it was written and is true now. Uh, and uh, I, I think, yeah, I think it has I think it has enough sort of political drive to get noticed, but it also has this incredible towering performance from Moss. My concern is that, like, the filmmaking, like Madeline's Madeline, is very abstract and looping and sort of wandering the camera, swirling all the time. And it's a little... It's exhausting, frankly, but it's a good kind of exhausting. And by the end, you realize the sort of point it's all been in service of. That sounds like her smell, too. Yeah, like exactly, exactly. So so it, this is like period her smell. You know, it's like, it's like um, you know, mid-century her smell. And whether that, you know, because it's a famous person that it's about, like, that will help it get more recognition from crustier members of, uh, you know, the, the um, elite, I don't know, we'll see. But um, regardless, it's just another opportunity to watch Elizabeth Moss, like, just really go for broke, and it pays off quite well. Yeah, her um, eventual award, like Oscar movie breakthrough, feels kind of inevitable, even if it's not this one. Um, like she's, you know, been dominant in television for so long and keeps running these amazing performances. Like it'll happen for her eventually. Yeah, I think you know, it sounds really cynical, but she might need to like do something a little less weird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so you want to talk about uh, Minari as well? Mm, I think is yeah. the last like big title you have on your list, and that's the other one that I feel like you know Sundance Buzz can be a little bit impenetrable from a distance if you're just watching Twitter feeds, but I do feel like I've seen Minari come up over and over again is something people love. Yeah, Minari um, is a movie that had become my top priority before the festival because it just had the right kind of whisper campaign. And I spoke to someone from A24 the other day, and she, she, I was like, yeah, I don't know if that was you, but like, well done. And she kind of gave me like a sly smile and a shrug. And it's like, okay, so maybe this whisper campaign was coming directly from A24. Maybe not. I don't know. <laughs> They're good at that kind of thing. Um, but regardless, you know, so it's an A24 movie with Plan B, Brad Pitt's production company producing. Uh, Stephen Yun is a producer and the star of the film. So the, yeah, the director, Lee Isaac Chung, who also wrote the film, he had a hit at, uh, you know, a festival hit kind of a, a while ago and then hasn't quite hit that same stride since. Um, but now, you know, I think has, has found a footing again. And uh, it's a very personal story. It's about a Korean-American family. You know, the, the parents are immigrants from Korea. The children are, are American-born, um, but still sort of torn between those two identities um, who moved to rural, rural, rural Arkansas uh, in the early 1980s. And then their grandmother comes to live with them. And it's, so it's a, it's a small family movie about a guy trying to do better for his family by starting a farm. It's about these two kids, particularly the little boy, just trying to, like, figure out the world, essentially, and it's really beautiful. It's a, just such a, a lovely like movie. It's 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 sweet. It's cute, but it's not cloying. The performances are all excellent. I mean, these kids they found are terrific. Uh, Stephen Young is great. So yeah, I was I was. It was perhaps the one film I've seen here, frankly, that lived up to its hype and then some. Stephen Young is one of those actors. You know, like Stephen Young has a an entire mountain of money from The Walking Dead, right? And he's one of those. I hope so. He's one of those actors who has taken all that money. Uh, off that project and then every choice he's made ever since has been great <laughs> and fascinating and he is such a mark of quality for me like if Steven Young has decided to do this movie I'm pretty sure it's going to be great or at least interesting and mm -hmm. um, so that's a that's a big marker for me on that movie 
Yeah, I mean, speaking of people who have had a lot of success in television, uh, like Elizabeth Moss, who seemed poised for breakout, like the amount of buzz around him in Burning, which like was never, I don't think, going to be that big an oscar movie, but people were just obsessed with him in that. Um, and he, you know, he worked with Bong Joon-ho in Okja. He was in Sorry to Bother You. Uh, yeah, you're right, Joanna, that like he had the ability to kind of choose whatever he wanted to do. And he's just shown such great taste. And also, you know, taking a risk on a movie like this that like, you know, you get a star like him attached and you can get the movie made. Um, it's, you know, you can imagine like that just being a huge contribution to getting this movie to exist at all. Right. Yeah. And I, we're, 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 we're like not, we're like way above this kind of thing. But if in case some like baser listeners are listening, like Stephen Young doesn't look bad as a sweaty farmer. <laughs> so I'm just handsome. Say. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, for, the, for the people yeah. who want to know. You know definitely not, not, not just for us, but like, you know, just, yeah. you know. Um, I, just put so my, yeah. I just put my little face on my hands and, and got all dreamy eyed <laughs> thinking about it. Um, <laughs> before we wrap up talking about Sundance, I did want to mention uh, Downhill, which is something that I was uh, watching pretty closely. This is the um, American remake of the Oscar, it did not get nominated, right? Uh, Force Majeure. It was like a, a controversy that didn't get nominated, is my yeah. memory. Yeah, uh, right. Like very close to being nominated, a uh, film Force Majeure uh, from a couple years ago. Uh, and this version stars Will Ferrell and Julia Louis Dreyfus. And basically, uh, the question a lot of people had when this remake was announced was uh, sort of why? You know, th- that happens a lot. It's like when I hear they're making a Parasite TV show, I'm sort of like, why when mm. this really good version exists? And so the burden that was on Downhill was like, it's, it didn't just have to be like a good movie in its own right for me it needed to justify its existence at all and my impression from the uh, reviews of Sundance we don't have to dwell too long on this is just that it did not clear that bar um, in its debut there no, it didn't. Um, I, you know, I spent my review just kind of being like, Force Majeure is a great movie. Why does this exist? Right. <laughs> you know, um, I will say, though, in the movie's defense, um, I mean, Rotten Tomatoes decided that my review was was fresh, so who knows? Mm. But um, Julia Louis-Dreyfus is excellent. Um, she's... Well, is that not a reason for it to exist? Like, I'm, yeah. I'm excited. The reviews have made me excited to see her because she was on Veep for so long. Like, she, again, speaking, people have had stellar television careers. Like, even if this movie itself doesn't make a great case for its existence, I'm excited to see her do something different. Yeah, and she gets to do a little drama, um, and and she just, like, really, like, rises to the occasion and just seems very committed to it. You know, and Farrell is fine, but he's just, he's miscast, you know? And uh, the movie just kind of, I think, simplifies itself in a way that Louis Dreyfus just seems like you could hand her some harder stuff. Like, she can do it. She's up for it, you know? Um, So if nothing else, that movie made me um, really uh, eager to see her in more movies. Uh, And maybe just, maybe a straight drama. That would be fascinating. And I, you know, anecdotally, I spoke to some sort of audience members waiting for various movies to start. And two of them brought up Downhill and they're, you know, sort of old Gen Xers, young boomer kind of type who have some money and like to come to the film festivals and uh, which is basically your whole audience at these things. Um, and they really hated the movie. And I was like, but the movie was made for you. <laughs> like, oh no. And have they seen Force Majeure? No, no. No, they just mm. didn't. They just didn't connect with the movie. So, so that was kind of a bummer here. Um, if we, you know, if people are interested in in accidents, in car wrecks, uh, you also have the last thing he wanted, the Anne Hathaway movie directed by D. Rees, based on a Joan Didion novella that uh, we read. Completely crashed and burned on its premiere here. Some people called it the worst movie they've seen at Sundance in 20 years. Uh, Holy moly! And then wow. I was a particularly particularly not a, not a fan of, and this was really kind of. 
I was really bummed was the Gloria's, the um, Julie Taymor biopic about Gloria Steinem, I think is a total mess. Um, but that's gotten some good feedback, right? It has, right? yeah, which I was uh, frankly shocked because I, it, I it, did you guys know that Gloria Steinem was Swedish? Or well, apparently she is when played by Alicia Vikander, who, <laughs> who cannot do an American accent and it actually gets worse as the movie goes on. Um, oh boy. But I guess good for that movie that it got some good reviews because that is also for sale and I think will be a tough one. But um, yeah, it's just been like the, this Sundance is littered with a lot of stuff that tried and, and kind of crashed. Um, and I would say Downhill didn't crash quite as hard um, as some other things, at least. So it has at least that going for it. Man, I, between Anne Hathaway and Alicia Vikander, is there like a third recent Best Supporting Actress winner who's in a bomb that w- turns this into a trend? I know, right? Yeah. Like uh, <laughs> someone someone said that it's it's been a year and two days since Serenity. <laughs> and now here, here's this. Uh, Annie, we are rooting know, for you. Speak for I, us all. Someone on Twitter last night was like, you can't wait to get, because I tweeted something about the movie that I then deleted, um, but they were like, can't wait to get into Diggit Hathaway. And I was like, no, I like Anne Hathaway. Like, I, no. I, I'm like, I, I like her in Colossal and all these other things. Like, I even like her in Serenity, but like, uh, I'm not rooting for anyone to fail. I'm not rooting for D. Reese to fail. Um, but something about that movie, I guess, just really did not come together. So, Ocean's uh, Nine. Ocean's yeah. Nine. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. All right, should we pivot off of Sundance and talk about the uh, Oscar-nominated shorts? Yes. Okay, so we we once again uh, did it and watched them all. Um, I think, I mean, the animated shorts is like a it's a trim 85 minutes, um, which I, I kind of often find the most interesting of them. Uh, the documentary is a little bit longer. The live-action ones, uh, in their defense, are not as much about child murder this year. I don't know. Which, which, which crop do you guys want to start with? Can we start with animated? Yeah. Did you guys get any mail related to uh, an animated short film this week? I don't think so. They sent me a pit bull. <laughs> they, <laughs> they sent me a kitten. They sent me a kit bull. So the, so the Pixar short uh, kit bull, which is, I believe, out of their Sparks shorts program. Kipple is, you know, the the cute little like kitten figure. They sent me a little stuffed one. It arrived at my house yesterday. It terrified my black cat. Uh, and that was last night's like evening's entertainment in my house. It was like terrifying my cat with this stuffed <laughs> gift from Pixar. So thank you, Pixar, for that. Uh, yeah, Kipple, which is something that I had seen over at Pixar like a while ago anyway but like uh, this is the sort of obligatory uh, Pixar short I found it very sweet Um, it didn't play in front of a Pixar feature though right that's why I think it's part of the Sparks program Um, okay I just like it's not something that people would have seen like in front of Toy Story I I saw Toy Story 4 in theaters and it wasn't there so yeah I think it's a little too dark to have played before I I would think so yeah I I was I would be glad not to have my kids see it. So it's part. So it's part of the Spark Shorts program that they started um, at Pixar, and this is a, a cool program that they have there where they let people who work at Pixar, who are maybe not like through the the more formal Shorts program, have a run at making like a much less expensive uh, short film. The styles are are wildly different. Um, as you, I, I think the style of Kipple is very different from what we normally see, and something that. I found out uh, when watching another one of those Spark Shorts, uh, Pearl, is that to make some of these, they allow the filmmakers to go, quote unquote, shopping 
in old Pixar films. So you can like look through their library of stuff and be like, okay, I like those eyes and those Mm. hands. And and that's how they're able to put together like sort of an indie quote unquote, uh, or at least much cheaper version. And it's, it's their way of trying to like lift up filmmakers you know, usually not white male uh, filmmakers, uh, you know, and, and get the their foot in the door in this world of animation, which I think is pretty cool. I love Kipple, but, you know, yeah, it's it's it is a little darker than your than your average Pixar short for sure. But sweet. And like the little, the little kitty, they're both so cute. They're so um, cute. They're really cute. The little dog, he looks like, I was thinking about Bao last year, like the little dumpling boy. Like the, he looks like a little <laughs> dumpling dog. He's just like so white and fluffy. You mean the little <laughs> like dumpling boy looking. who was devoured by his mother? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. um, but I also think like with, with, the, with the cat in particular, the, um, the articulation of the movement was really well done. And, um, you know, it brought to mind the cats that live in my house. You know, it's just like, oh, like that's what the cats, <laughs> how cats move and sort of react to things. Um, so it, it, it's well done in that regard. A cool thing, uh, one last thing I'll say about the Spark Shorts, and I swear Pixar did not pay me other than that stuffed animal that they sent paid, to my house. Paid you in kit bowls. Um, is, uh, I believe they're all on Disney+, Plus, so there's like an easy way to watch them, which is cool. Like, a, you know, it's a cool distribution platform for this yeah. this uh, project. So yeah. um, the other sort of a really uplifting, uh, except for there's a bit of a an emotional twist at the end, um, film is this movie called Hair Love. And it's funny because I follow the... Um, the filmmaker uh, Matthew Cherry on Twitter, and I don't know why I started following him. Um, like, uh, must be almost a year ago now. But I feel like I've been hearing about Hair Love nonstop because he's been like, he's one of those uh, social media people who's like so effective at sharing news about their project. And so I've just had like Hair Love in my feed twenty four seven since I made the decision to follow this person. Uh, I have no regrets about it. Uh, it's mm. a really, if you're looking for something uplifting, this is like probably the most uplifting thing we have on offer to discuss today yeah, um, yeah. he's yeah. a he's an interesting story he he's a former nfl player turned filmmaker he's directed i think two feature films one of which was at south by southwest a couple of years ago and a couple of years ago he i forget how the topic came up but he started kind of tweeting about black girls and their fathers and and and, and this kind of discord about like how to take care of their hair that then turned into a crowdsourced book that then turned into this short that was, I think, maybe also crowdfunded or something. And like, and just watching this whole narrative all the way to an Oscar nomination, it's really exciting. I believe it's now streaming on somewhere so you can see it. It played before a movie uh, last year. Um, it's just been a really nice story. And I, yeah. I, like, I, I, like, it's been really nice to follow. And it's, this is such a great place for it to end up. And it's a sweet movie. It's, it's, the animation is good. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I wonder... Um, as we've seen with other nominations this year, like I wonder if if, if its perspective is not quite the perspective that aligns with Academy voters, um, et cetera, et cetera. But um, I'm, I'm but really also glad you that- can look at um, the track record and like Disney and Pixar have won so many times yeah. here. Um, Kobe Bryant, uh, you know, speaking of his loss this week, won in this category two years ago. Like I think having those kinds of connections and being, I mean, looking at Matthew Cherry's IMDb, he's directed a bunch of television episodes. Mm-hmm. Like he's one of those people who knows a million Academy members, um, which could be a pretty powerful uh, case for a win here. Yeah. Yeah, and I've been seeing like a, a, like a lot of panels, a lot of people doing panels with him, like lifting up the the film and stuff like that. So I do think it has that like advantage over some of our other like artier entries this year because like the other the the 
the animated shorts category is so interesting for like the various uh, styles uh, that we see. So there's this one called Sister, which is like felted stop motion uh, is mm-hmm. how how I would describe it. Uh, it also has a very like downturn of a twist at the end. I was a little frustrated by the downturn twists in the animated features. And so I just do want to shout out what I think is probably the most like artistically impressive film in the animated shorts, which is something called Memorable, which from the beginning lets you know that it's about dementia. And in that way, I like didn't feel like I had the rug pulled out from under me in any way. And I think it's a really beautiful use of the medium to possibly depict, I'm, you know, I, I don't know firsthand, but like possibly depict the experience of of losing your anchors in reality uh, via de- dementia. So I it's thought so beautiful. I thought it was gorgeous. Yeah, absolutely. I think that one's my personal favorite. Me too. Of all of them. I think yeah. for the reason you mentioned Joanna, but not having like a gut punch twist, but like being about a dark subject from the beginning, and also just the way you know it's, it's showing this man, kind of like what you're talking about with the Anthony Hopkins movie uh, Richard, where he's like you're like within him losing his grip on reality and like showing him you know, hugging this painted version of his wife. Uh, It's gorgeous. Yeah, I've spent a lot of time up here in the mountains of Utah thinking about dementia, thanks to (laughs) these two movies. (laughs) Um, But I agree with you. I think for me, aesthetically, Daughter um, was a little bit more appealing than Memorable. But I think that if if we're, you know, doing a predictive game here, you know, sure, Kitbull has all that working for it, but memorable. I don't know. You got old Academy members. I feel like, yes, it is in French, but like, that feels like to me the, the the strongest bet. Do you guys agree? Either the the like feel good celebrity push of hair love, which I would have no issue with, or memorable, which feels like almost sometimes you wonder if they go for like the most animation. I don't know. It feels like the most ambitious uh, visually, and I, I think it's a really really strong uh, front runner. Yeah, absolutely. I would go hair love all the way. I think connections plus something uplifting um, plus Issa Rae. And also, if you're an Academy member who is mad about it being too many white nominees this year, that's not a bad direction to go either. Well, I hope you're right. I mean, that would be really exciting. That would be really cool. Um, All right. You guys want to do documentary next? The the longest (laughs) uh, slate of all of them. Um, There is, I mean, go ahead, Richard. No, I was just going to say, so I just, so I had watched, I think my my last, live action short. It was really depressing. We'll get into that. And I was like, okay, over the documentaries. And the first thing I put on, I was like, oh, cool. It's about Korean teenagers drowning in a boat. Like, like <laughs> <laughs> I cannot win. I, Although I, I, I think that, that one's my favorite. Uh, oh, is it? I, I, um, I like really carefully chose which ones I watched in which order for the documentary. Cause that was also, that was my last round. And, uh, I should, I like th- this annual tradition we have of watching these short films. Like I'm getting better and better at figuring out like how, in what order to do it. And I really hmm. should probably save animation for dessert, but then animation often has these like dementia bombs, like lurking in it and yeah. stuff like that. So, uh, yeah. So live action, let's start, let's start with the teens. Why not? Yeah, I I know I watched um, in the absence first. It's the it's the Korean nominee. It, it along with Parasite, they are the two first South Korean movies ever nominated for any Oscars, which is wild again. Um, and who knows, maybe that gives it an advantage here. But I just I thought it was such an interesting procedural, like it's showing mm-hmm. the footage of this ferry sinking with audio of the Coast Guard and the president and all these people like basically failing to respond properly to it and. It's kind of less about, like, the tragedy of this loss, even though it's obviously tragic, than just, like, the government incompetence that totally could have prevented it. Um, And it's so careful 
um, and like I said, procedural, that um, it, it really drew me in and it didn't feel as like horrible and weighty and tragic as just like interesting. Yeah, it's and it's grimly compelling for sure. Yes. And, you're, and you're watching it, especially the opening stretches and you're like, wait, so they really just have all this footage? Like this is insane. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, of this event occurring in real time, um, which is a terrible, terrible tragedy and one that probably could have been I mean, I think the movie argues much less of a tragedy uh, had people acted responsibly. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I agree. I think I think it also feels it feels like the most slickly made. Like it feels like the most like f- complete film, I guess, in mm. a way where where I think some of the other shorts feel you know they're interesting subject matter, but like, well, I guess Life Overtakes Me also feels this way. But like. Um, they don't, they don't feel scrappy, and I mean that kind of in a good way. They feel very, like, pro. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. Very polished. Um, for me, the standout in the docks is learning to skateboard in a war zone, uh, in parentheses, if you're a girl. Um, this is this is probably the most uplifting, even though there's, like, really distressing... Well, no, Walk, Run, Cha-Cha, I guess, is, like, the most, like, purely uplifting. But, like, uh, there's a lot of distressing context for this film, but it's about this... uh, this program in Kabul where uh, girls and boys, but this is about the girls, uh, you know, can go and learn to skateboard and go to school like uh, children who might not otherwise have access to these programs, this education. It focuses on these girls and the women who teach them and sort of and and their uh, some of their families get interviewed as well. Um, and there's just like visually uh, I don't mean to be like sort of like a basic uh, you know, <laughs> viewer, but like visually these girls zooming around on their skateboard is just like really, really like did it for me. And I mean, it, it reminded me of, of last year's winner, which is period end of sentence, um, mm-hmm. you know, which tells a sort of similar, like, let's find a program to really help these young women, you know, feel empowered and liberated and stuff like that. And so I was, I was a big fan of that, of that film. That's a great case for this to be a potential winner, Joanne. I didn't think about that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it's it's more um, like uplifting. I do think it like like Richard was saying, it doesn't feel as much like a complete narrative like that one. And I think St. Louis Superman or also Life Overtakes Me. You kind of watch them. You're like, OK, so that feels like the beginning of the story. Like what? Yeah, exactly. Like I'm just like glimpsing into these worlds. But I feel like there's a whole like book that I need to read about it. Or like that. Right. And if you if you if you had a full film about this the skateboarding project, I would want to follow these girls over like multiple years, you know what I mean? And like, see, you know, the girls who don't come back because they've turned 13 or whatever it is, you know, Mm -hmm. like that's, I agree with you that there should be a larger story to come out of this, but for a short, um, I don't know. I, I agree with you. I like walk, run, cha cha and St. Louis Superman felt much more to me. Like, uh, okay we've what 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 full story have i walked here this the premise of this is so engaging to me that it didn't it didn't hit me in that same way i guess Hmm. yeah and i wonder if it you know like period of end sentence period end of sentence if it has enough if it has the right balance of uplift and serious you know oh my god like this is what a horrible you know living condition for these people like you know it has that calibration that i feel like could make people vote for it um just because it feels it's an important issue movie but it's not too hard on the psyche you know at the same time um mm-hmm. whereas you know St. Louis Superman while while really about a fascinating man like it's about like really intractable american problems and i you know uh, demonstrates like potential solutions but also i don't know it it doesn't um it, it doesn't have a cozy sort of uplift to it at all 
Well, St. Louis Superman also ends uh, that, you know, the central character has retired from right. his life as a politician. You're like, oh, wait, hang on. This, like, it feels like it reframes the entire story that you've just watched. And right. Ends. Yeah. And then I feel like life overtakes me. The subject matter, which is, I, for, I forget the name of the condition, but this thing where these children... Resignation? Re- yeah, right? res- they, yeah. They retreat yeah. basically from their conscious selves uh, in response to trauma and are a lot... It's like a Sleeping Beauty thing. And like, like they're alive, but they're not... I mean, they're not functioning. Um, it's so eerie and otherworldly yeah. almost that I feel like certain, I don't know, I, I, you know, they say it in the movie that like people would thought these kids were faking it. And even watching the movie, I was looking at them and I was like, no, they're awake. They're awake. They gotta be awake. You know, like, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I feel like that alienation maybe will, will keep it from, um, being on the top of, of voters list. That's a really weird thing about that film because like they mentioned that and then it, the film sort of kind of dances around the implication that like, because it's tied to... The the film is set in Sweden. Um, the largest like number of diagnosed cases are in Sweden, and they're almost entirely refugee children. And this idea that these children are afflicted with this syndrome, which means they their families cannot be deported. So there's this implication in some of the interviews and some of the title cards at the end that perhaps you know the rise in this hitherto undiagnosed thing is related to families not wanting to be deported and so it just sort of like it has this ugly question mark sort of floating around it in a way that I like I felt guilty being like are these kids faking it but at the same time I'm like but the movie is sort of asking that question too but not being bold enough to really overtly ask that question and so I just I found it a really weird mix of of uh, sympathetic and also cynical I suppose I don't know I thought they connected it to, like, the right-wing anti-immigrant sentiment, like, how they have used that. I didn't feel like the movie was as much asking that question, but maybe I just missed um, the part that you saw. There was just that title card at the end, especially where they talk about how there's been a a rise in Australia now uh, among Mm -hmm. families who are in danger of being deported. Yeah. One last thing I'll actually say about my favorite, which is uh, learning to skateboard in a war zone if you're a girl, is that the framing of the documentary I really appreciated because the founder of, of this program, Skatistan is what it's called, um, is Oliver Perkovich, who's a, like an Australian skateboarder. So they could have had like the found like the fact that they just focused on the women. You occasionally see like a male instructor, it seems like, sort of in the background. But the way in which the film is really focused on interviewing just women about this, I appreciated and thought was was a good framing. So, yeah, uh, yeah, it was it was funny when it got to the ending, like, oh, this place, and that's why it's called Skatistan, because it's such like a punny English language thing. And you're like, wait, did, like, who came up with this? Yeah, and yeah. when you realize it's an Australian skateboarder, you're like, ah, makes sense. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, okay, live action shorts. Um, I will say there wasn't really any of these that I loved. I don't, like, I didn't feel as, like, repulsed by them in the way that I did with, like, Skin last year. But uh, I feel like I would take several of the docs or animated films over any of these. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a weak crop. I think what something I appreciated about at least one of them, which was Brotherhood, is that I didn't know anything about the particular problem of Tunisian young people who went to go fight with ISIS or ISIL, yes, and now are stuck in Syria and Iraq and can't come back because the Tunisian government doesn't want them in their country, um, and and apparently they just had a disproportionate amount of of, of guys, young guys, go fight for that cause, like, from Tunisia. Um, mm-hmm. So I thought that, I, I, it, it caused me to like, do a little research, and I was like, oh, that, I didn't know that story was ha- was happening. So it, w- it was good in that way. But, like, yeah, I just didn't really connect with these. 
you know, I guess, you know, Saria also forced me to learn about something, a true thing that's terrible. Really but, awful. Yeah. Really yeah. awful. Um, Although the way that Saria tells it, like, so this is a story about the, um, um, about these girls in a Guatemalan orphanage who uh, all died in a fire and it's like that no one has been charged in the case. Um, and it does this really nice job of setting up this friendship between these two girls, I thought, where you like see them talking about have zits and like, you know, boys and stuff like that. Um, but then when it turns into the real life tragedy, it's kind of baffling the way that it's handled. And I got to the end, I was like, hang on, what's supposed to have happened here? Uh, and I was kind of disappointed about how it like couldn't combine the real story with, I thought, some like nice naturalism that came earlier in it. Yeah, it felt like it was kind of, I think I said this too over text, Katie, it, it felt like um, it was made for people who know the story and, and it mm-hmm. was sort of like a recreation of the the facts or the event. Um, but like those of us who hadn't heard this horrible story where I, I was like, because it goes from these girls in this orphanage who are, you know, just trying to be as normal as possible and live their lives. And then it turns into a stu- like a rebellion against the very cruel administration of this, of this facility. And then, yeah. it, then this thing happens at the end and you're like, whoa, what just happened? You know? Yeah. Um, I, I, yeah, I disagree. I mean, like, I agree with you that it has this like weird uh, reversal or sucker punch or whatever at the end. But like, I, I think it's meant it's intentional in that I think you're meant to be drawn into what you think is going to be like a sweet, simple story about two girls getting ready for a dance. And then they like, you know, give you the information that this place is not, is awful, truly awful, you know. Um, And then like this thing comes at the end. And I think, I think it's an intentional, like, I don't know how effective it is, but I think they're trying to draw you into the normalcy and then just sort of like have you be like, oh my God, this could happen to any girl sort oh, of sure. thing. And like, why didn't I hear about this? And I, I, yeah. think, I think they're trying to like sh- sort of shock and surprise you at the end with what happened, which is truly, truly atrocious. So. I think I was just confused on this like general level. Like they have this woman who's like the warden of the orphanage or whatever, and they depict her as like mean and uncaring, but then she just like deliberately lets them all die in a fire. And I, I guess <laughs> Yeah. couldn't figure out why or how or I agree. Like what, yeah. what went on there. Yeah. Um, there's also uh, a, a, The Neighbor's Window, which is about uh, a young uh, set of parents with kids who are overwhelmed by their lives, which I didn't relate to at all. I have to let you guys know. It's uh, no content <laughs> relevant to my life whatsoever. Um, but I did like it. For I, I thought it, it has a twist in it, um, like so many of them, that I kind of like didn't really jibe with. But I, I did like it for a long time. Yeah. And it's directed by Marshall Curry, who is, a, um, I think, an Oscar-winning documentarian or at least a, a very well-regarded one. So it's an interesting switch for him. It was a funny experience watching it because I was like, wait, have I seen this before? And then I was <laughs> well, like, it feels like an episode of High Maintenance or something, right? But it was right? so it, weird. And then I realized I listened to the radio story that it's based on. Oh. It was a woman in San Francisco who, ha- who this had really happened to. Um, oh, interesting. And so I was like, oh, they, I thought it was like a modern love or something, but yeah. Um, Maybe and that's why I disliked it so much. It felt too close to home to like San Francisco. I was really yeah. bothered by this for some reason. I think because of all the other weighty subjects around it. And this just felt like rich white people problems in like sure. a really like uh, alienating way for me. So anyway. Yeah. yeah. I think Maria Dizzy is really good in it. And she um, is. She is. You know, I feel like it's not that often because, you know, that you see a recognizable face in these movies. Um, you know, it was good. But I, I also felt like. Uh, and I felt this way with a sister a little bit too, that it was maybe sort of an audition for a full length feature, yeah. which you know most shorts are, but I don't know it did so it doesn't feel entirely complete, I guess, yeah, I did like a sister, um which it's funny that so there's 
a sister, and then there's brotherhood, and mm-hmm. then there's daughter, and then there's sister, like all in different <laughs> categories. It's really yeah. hard to remember which one you're talking about. Um, I mean, that one was like pretty solid. You know, you can imagine them like, okay, we're going to make something with really few resources. It's in two rooms, basically two actors. Um, I can't imagine it costs very much, and the acting is really good, but that's kind of where it begins and ends. Yeah, and it reminded me, I remember that movie from last year from Spain? Yes. The yeah, the on kid the f- on the beach. Yeah. Oh. It, and, and, and in fact, that was turned into a feature film. Uh, oh. Yeah, so um, I'm wondering if that's kind of the plan with this, although this has a little bit less of a mystery, uh, whereas that the Spanish one had kind of an unknown at the end. Um, yeah. But, I, you know, I was watching it, and I was like, what is this? And then I figured out, I was like, oh, it's kind of a thriller. That's kind of fun, you know? It's interesting because it seems to be, I, I, I'm sorry I don't have the full information on there if this is based on an actual thing that happened in France, but it seems to almost be based on this, like, viral Reddit thread that cropped up in 2014 about a woman who, like, called 911 to order a pizza when she was, uh, like, she pretended to order a pizza and the dispatcher figured out that she was in a situation and, like, sent someone to rescue her. It's, like, something that I've heard, like, is this an urban legend? Did this actually happen sort of thing? So I was, like, the film started up. I was like, oh, are we, we're doing the pizza call. Like, that's, that's, <laughs> that's interesting. This is something that I don't think that I couldn't see living beyond a short. It almost had didn't have enough to fill the time in the short itself. Do you know what I mean? Um, mm. But uh, the idea is is interesting and, and there's tension there for sure. Uh, and then we have... Um, Nefta football, Nefta club. football club. Um, about, uh, I was very anxious through this whole movie. I know, movie. I know. Uh, these kids because it's like a Coen yeah. Brothers plot with kids, like yeah. when they find a big like a stash of drugs in the desert and then run off with it, and you're just like waiting for something horrible to happen the whole time. Which is why I love that it just turns into a little like sweet joke at the end, you know? Yeah, like, yeah. And and this to me felt like the. I mean, this sounds like a stupid thing because they're all shorts, but like this felt like the most like short, you know, it was like, it's a little joke of a movie. It, it, mm-hmm. it, it's not going to be a feature film. It needs to be this, this length in order for the joke to pay off. It couldn't be two hours. You know, I kind of appreciated the way that it, um, you know, I think so many, so often we see these movies set in parts of the world where we don't often see film set in and we, you know, we think, oh, it's going to be this tragedy it's going to be about this and 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 it, it it gestures toward those things but then at the end it's like no it's just about like kids playing soccer and like drugs being bad and like you know like <laughs> i don't know I, I just really appreciated that yeah i think that would probably get my vote if i were voting in this well category. who do you think is going to vote for what i mean i don't know i mean it's i i marshall curry has been nominated for an oscar this is his fourth oscar nomination so that might give the neighbor's window a, a leg up but i do feel like more elaborate projects often win here like we think of our friend the silent child which we all were kind of like huh that's pretty but not really about anything and then it went in one um so i don't i, I don't know i feel like either saria um or saria or brotherhood I don't know why those like I think shining a light on a thing that you were unaware hitherto unaware of seems like something that would really work in the Academy. And I do want to like I want to shout out Brotherhood as my personal favorite. It's a visually a very gorgeous movie. They cast these three actual brothers who I think who I believe like inspired the film in the first place that the filmmaker. They have such an incredible look. I love looking at their faces. I love looking at their faces. I believe the story is that the filmmaker, Mariam Jabir, who is a Canadian Tunisian Canadian filmmaker was like traveling, saw these boys, these like freckled ginger boys in, uh, uh, you know, abroad and was like, this is such an, these are such interesting faces in these contexts. You know, they look like Irish, you know, and, um, and sort of like 
created the film around them. And that I think is uh, an interesting story. I've, I've, I just, I couldn't get enough of like staring at their faces in brotherhood. Yeah. So. I mean, the oldest yeah. brother is going to be walking men's fashion week in Milan, like next month oh. or something. Like, <laughs> yes. like he's gorgeous. Um, yes. But I don't know. I I'm, I'm thinking, and I agree with you, Joanna, that it was probably my personal favorite, but um, I'm feeling cynical. And I just think brightly lit, well-appointed spaces in a recognizable city with a recognizable actress and a sad little story. I think Neighbors Window's winning. Uh, I'm going to go into the not-so-distant past and point out that a previous winner in this category is a 2013 short called The Phone Call uh, with with Sally Hawkins. Uh, It stars Sally Hawkins as Heather, a crisis hotline counselor trying to dissuade uh, an unseen Jim Broadman from a suicide attempt. So uh, I'm going with a a sister. Same kind of movie. (laughs) Why not? The Run for Revoke is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture. I am Fran Libowich. Um, who should be the mayor of New York? We all support yeah, that. We support that. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> Nikki. Yes. It's been really great she being in this beautiful pink lover. room. All right, Asher, can you hear us? I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me? We can. We can. All right, here we are. <laughs> On the podcast, you'll learn how Vogue really works. Sometimes we'll come in for a second or even third run through until we are AWOK. Can you tell us what AWOK means? It means um, A-W-O-K and a winter OK. I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mal. And we're the hosts of The Run Through with Vogue, where fashion and culture collide. Join us. It's AWOK. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, so I had the chance. So um, as we alluded to at the beginning of the episode, there is a, a party that is not the Vanity Fair party, believe it or not. No, the the Governor's Ball, which is sort of the official after party of the Oscars in that the venue is like right. It steps away from the theater. This is where uh, nominees go to get their statues engraved. If you've ever seen them uh, do that. So the same woman, Cheryl Chiquetto, has been running this event for decades and she's grown and grown and grown it and uh cheryl and her company sequoia they also do the governor's ball that's after um the emmys uh which is a much bigger affair the the governor's ball after the oscars i think is only like 1500 people are are allowed in so she just you know took us behind the scenes of of some of the stuff some of her tricks of the trade uh some of the ways in which the event has changed over the years and i just found a lot of it very fascinating including like that she keeps flip-flops in her office in case someone wants to ditch their heels so you know this is just a someone who has been doing an event uh and doing it well for decades in hollywood and this is this is her story How are you today? I'm doing so well. How are you? Not bored. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. This is you're you're in the thick of it, the busy season. What has moving the date of the Oscars up done for you and your uh, production schedule around this event? You know, we knew about it several, several months ago. I so am not a person that does anything at the at the last minute. You know, it's sort of like if you're producing a short, you're producing a film. It started off as a short, but now it's a film, not to take away from how complicated a short can be, but, and so we knew far in advance, so we planned accordingly. For those folks who don't know, who are listening, how long have you been doing this, this particular event? I say it's 32 years, 1989 I started. I don't think that 
anybody really has the date right? And everybody keeps saying 31. I said, no, it's 32. Now, with that being said, again, it was so very different for so many years. What do you remember from that 89, that first governor's ball that you did back in 89? What was it like? It was phenomenal. I could not believe it. As you know, I have a theatrical degree. The great thing about our company is that we just want everything to work out and we want to address everyone's concerns. We address anyone's, you know, whatever their needs are for beverages, for food, for noise levels, for, you know, there's variances of seating. We uh, we have actually like sewing kits in our offices. I mean, like if you walk into our event, we're so, I think what sets us apart is that we're so much of service. And we understand what the executives want and the gov- board of governors want and where, what the nominees need and what everyone's food preferences are. So we just want to accommodate. How often does a, does a party goer walk in needing, needing someone, you to bust out those sewing kits and stitch something up for them? You know what? In my lifetime, I have to say maybe that's happened five times. Right, but you're always ready. Listen, I'm a working mother. There's been all kinds of situations that I, you know, celebrities have had newborns. I mean, there's things that have to be accommodated. And I think because I'm a working mother and come from a family and my staff is a family, that we understand that anything is possible. Heels have broke off. Right. You know, I, I've, you know, there's been certain things I've accommodated several times. You know, this is called Little Gold Man. So this is like both award shows, correct? Yeah. My clients at the Television Academy, even this year, said so-and-so has shoe issues. I said, no problem. Went to my office and I had my box, which I always keep, a half a dozen pair of flip-flops because <laughs> they just, heels are not exactly the best or the most comfortable things on this earth to wear. Yeah, right. So, you know, it, it's those those little nuances that I think make a difference. Now, aside from that, people always say, oh my God, you rub elbows with the celebrities. I said, that is not my job. My job is to make sure that leadership and the governors accommodate and host their guests and that everything around them runs smoothly and really supports that. They're there to celebrate the industries. And I'm there to support them doing that. And don't think that there's a lot, a lot of deals and conversations and smoozing going on. But the show is over. Now what do we do, right? Now at both of them, there's, you know, an engraving scenario with the little gold men, which is very populated and, uh, you know, really gets a lot of showcase, you know. And so we love that. We believe in accommodating all our guests. Now, both events are not sit-down dinners. The Oscars went by the wayside, sit-down dinners. I believe it's now 10 years ago. The Emmys, the last two have not been sit-down dinners. They've been sitting for the last four hours or whatever. They want to get up and walk around a little bit, right? And it's exciting to walk around. It's exciting. And what we try to do is incorporate... All, with all of the sponsors, they both have sponsors. So we really try to incorporate activities that, um, and you know, established areas that everything is entertaining in a way when you think about it. If you're sitting down at this fantastic banquet and the florals are there and there's preset wines or there's champagne that's been chilled, that's and it that everything becomes an entertainment element, even though it might be. Stationary. I'm not just talking about the performers. I'm talking about 
the elements of the evening. You know, everything is entertaining. For me, once you get to the ball, all bets are off. Yeah, I have, well, so I have a couple questions about that. Like, well, first of all, I want to say, of course, there are, you know, a few other parties uh, after the Oscars in town. We we throw a little shindig ourselves over at Vanity Fair. Um, but people always stop at yours first um, mm-hmm. because, uh, you know, for a number of reasons, one of them is this engraving station. I'm wondering, how long have you had that engraving station as part of as part of the event there? I would say that's got to be at least 10 years. And yeah, of course they're going to go. And also, let's face it, there are studio obligations for talent, too, to attend. But this event is only 50 feet away from the theater. Right. I really have had very few times that actual nominees did not show up, you know, if they secured the, if they were the recipient of the Emmy or Oscar or not. That's very few times. And quite honestly, I always think, my God, if if you're a nominee, isn't that a winner? God. You know, it depends how you how you decide to handle it. Glenn Close did that like sort of fabulous costume change and just came out and celebrated last year. So, you know. I have to tell you, that was so incredible. And I don't want, I'm not one, again, that I, I'm there to host. But she was magnificent um, in that movie. And I just had to tell her that. <laughs> but I don't, I'm not one because I was actually at the same time they're just busting something and bringing something else. She really enjoyed the dinner. Well, that's, I mean, that's what I would do if I were her. I would just have a, a fantastic night if I could. So I'm, I'm curious about the engraving station, not to get too much on the nitty gritty, but I'm curious if someone, if an, if a winner gets their award, but, you know, I don't know, twists their ankle or, or is super tired and decides they don't want to come get their statue engraved at the party, is there another way that they can get their statue engraved? What what happens if they don't visit your engraving station? Oh, yeah. If, it, if, it, if for whatever reason they did not come and the percentage is really, really low, the Academy right. of Commerce at a later date, Got which it. used to be the situation before. For the Emmys, we call it the winner's circle. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Do you have any, not, you know, not to name names necessarily, but do you have any memories of someone who in, in that moment, and I, I understand that the, the engraving stations are a little private. So, you know, the, the person could be there with maybe their nearest and dearest and the other winners, but it's not a huge, massive crowd around the engraving station. But do you have any memories of someone who celebrated in a particularly like, hilarious or over-the-top kind of way when they got their statue engraved? You recall last year, the best actor with champagne. Oh, oh Rami so, Malek. Yeah, yeah. Rami Malek. Yeah. That was crazy. I mean, literally, I wasn't there, but literally, because it is a very private area for the Oscars. The Emmys, you it's, you can watch it from behind stanchions, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there's got to be a certain amount of protectedness just to give you know, people's privacy, but yes, he just took that champagne and just creamed everybody. I mean, the, the technicians behind the station were completely floored, but I'm sorry. How fun is that? If someday someone listening to this podcast finds themselves on that invitation list for the first time, what advice do you have for people going to the governor's ball for the first time? This this hallowed, exclusive, uh, top uh, of the shelf event in Hollywood. You know that it truly is a ball. How many times can we actually say we're going to a ball? Oh, I know. I mean, 
you you twice a year every year, but the rest of us, yeah, it's a it's a much shorter list. Um, yeah, the my shoes are very very comfortable, but I, I have to because I run around. <laughs> yeah, no, I run around like crazy, and I'm done with the you know the high heels. But I, you know, you obviously you're walking on the red carpet, and you're going to a, an event. You know, women just love to wear heels. And if your feet get really, really sore and you can't tolerate it anymore, ask me for a pair of flip-flops. You got them. You got the flip-flops ready to go. <laughs> um, and then you mentioned, you know, you want people to, they've been running this marathon. They're no longer in the telecast. They get to relax. There's a certain measure of privacy. There's a preference for no photos inside the event. But the rise of social media and everyone having, you know, cameras on their phones has really mm-hmm. changed that um, notion okay. of complete privacy. Oh. How has social media impacted your your event, and, and how do you try to, to grapple with that? You know what's so interesting? At our production meeting yesterday, we talked way back in the day. I had staff that if they went through the mags and there were cameras in their purse, we had to collect them, check them in, and give them back after the ball. And it was as much as a couple hundred. Well, you can't do that now. There's no way. So here's the deal. I feel that... It feels very inclusive if people, you know, if there's social media and there's, there's just going to be. With that being said, like anything, I think it's really important to respect the privacy of what we call our high profile guests. And we do have security that watch. And we make sure, because we don't want our guests to feel so bombarded. As I started to say, it's these events that we want them to be able to relax, enjoy, and celebrate, right? Right. So we, we do have security, and we have folks that, you know, I have really fantastic managers that have been a part of these events for 20 years now, 30 years, and um, very seasoned. And it's sort of, you know, it's sort of like we can detect if something's out of hand. And then we politely ask that guest to refrain from, you know, intruding the privacy of someone that perhaps doesn't not given a choice, right? I'm not talking about taking a picture in front of a full size Emmy. Right. So what? They're there. We want that. Did they right. want that? They want the word to get out, right? It's right. all about communication and celebration and watching the telecast, which is gonna be incredible. You know, and that's all wonderful. The awards so are wonderful. So I just feel like it's it's gotta be handled very gingerly. And if somebody really is a you know, um, um, intruding on somebody's boundaries and privacy. It'd be like anybody walking up to the street and flashing a camera in your face. You'd be like, what the hell are you doing? You know what I'm saying? So I feel like that has to be managed very politically. And then it's out of my hands. I can only report it or security sees it themselves. And then security in the academy. In the end, it's really the academy's decision for some of these political moves. Right. And I do feel it's a complete, it's a vibe. It's a vibe that I'm interested in. It's a vibe that when I walk up, which I did last year, top, top tier um, couple that was standing in the center. I said, can I find you seating? They said, we love standing. You got it. Oh, and then I get on the radio and say, so-and-so does not a seat. They love standing. And I say, then we're going to bring items to you. And they said, fantastic. I said, well, there you go. And you move on. You know, when you have that many, yeah, when you have that many guests and that many staff, you know, I tell the captains and the managers, it's in one evening. You've taken care of 30 transactions. 
this person's allergic to nuts, or this, it's too loud, or I'd like a seat, or do you have a shawl, I'm a bit chilly, or whatever, right? If we've taken care of 30 transactions, each and individually, then we've done our job. What does it mean for someone like Joaquin Phoenix to stand up at the Golden Globes and call out sort of like the vegan uh, approach to catering at that and and shine a light on these efforts of various events in town to have this eco-consciousness? Yeah, I've got to say, let me tell you something. We've been a part of it for years, years and years and years. Right. And so, you know, I, I get it. I feel this country is in dire need of getting on the right track. And now we're getting political. Joaquin and all of these, you know, really high profile have to get together and get, you know, the whole country on track um, across the board. But it'll take time. I love what Brad Pitt said, the Globe and Globes at the very end. Did you hear he said? Yes. Like, tomorrow. Be kind. Be kind to somebody. Yeah. Like, like. Just be kind. I love it. Well, thank you so much for your time and for all your hard work over the years creating these incredible events. I I really appreciate it. All the best of luck to all events. You know, may we all celebrate this in, these incredible occasions. And, you know, we're all in it together. There's, uh, I've never really felt like, oh, my event, your event, that event, oh, his yeah. event. I don't, I don't think that's our vibe. We don't compete with each other. We're sort of complimentary. So I will accept your, I, I will accept your yeah. best of luck on behalf of all of Vanity Fair. And I appreciate it. Absolutely. <laughs> and now we're going to share the interview that our colleague Johanna Desta did with Cynthia Arrivo. Uh, it's actually the, the second time that they have talked this season. Uh, Johanna profiled Cynthia for an issue of Vanity Fair earlier or uh, late last year. So they got to catch up and talk about uh, what I think has been a pretty exciting uh, run for Cynthia Revo because, you know, she broke out on Broadway. Everyone kind of knew she'd be a star. Widows, our beloved Widows, didn't go as far as we wanted it to. But, uh, you know, as soon as you knew she was playing Harriet Tubman, you can kind of see this Oscars trajectory happen for her. And then it did. Uh, and so she's one of those people who we kind of want to watch everything she does next. So let's listen to Johanna's conversation with Cynthia Revo. Hey, Cynthia, how's your day been going? So it's busy, one thing through another, and, and in the middle of getting ready now for the cordon, so yeah. Oh, nice. Okay. Um, I, there are a million things I could ask you, but I need to start by asking about the Academy Luncheon. How was it? Yeah, it was lovely. It was really lovely. It's a very, very, very relaxed with everyone sitting and you know, speaking and congratulating each other. So it felt nice to be around everyone and finally like, look people in the eye and say, I love your work and congratulations. Mm, yeah, I saw that you had a moment with Brad Pitt, who was wearing a name tag, which I think is so funny. Um, what well, did you guys talk about? They give you the name tag at the beginning, and um, I think he just kept it on. <laughs> I One thing I was curious about, though, too, is, you know, that luncheon brings everybody together. You've been seeing the same people over and over over the course of this circuit. But was there anybody, maybe besides Brad, that you hadn't been able to meet before and you were able to meet them at the luncheon? A few people already. Uh, Kathy Bates has met before. But Jonathan Price was a, was a newbie. But to sit and actually have the time to speak to Kathy Bates, because she sent me a really lovely email when I got the nomination. Um, so I was able to, like, see her face to face and say thank you. That was really nice. And I've met most, but being able to, like, see them in a room and have the conversation. Well, I have a question that's kind of the reverse of that. I'm wondering, who are the people that you've been seeing at every single gala, every single ceremony? And maybe you guys didn't know each other before, but 
now just by virtue of seeing each other all the time now you're friends who are those people for you this award season uh, it's probably Renee Zellweger and uh, <laughs> Charlotte Johansson and most Charlize Theron oh wow so for me, the two, yeah the two Renee and Charlize we seem to have become fast friends which is really cool that's really beautiful. Have you guys had sort of like a best actress uh, meeting of the minds, best actress communication, lunch? We, no, we've, we've been texting and calling and I've FaceTimed with them for a couple, I've FaceTimed especially with Charlize as well. And like Renee and I are texting all the time. So we, we seem to just be like egging each other on and giving each other great um, encouragement. It's really nice. Oh, I love that. What are you and Charlize FaceTime about? This is a friendship that I Everything. did not know about. <laughs> she has a... She has dogs, and I have a, uh, a little dog, and uh, we talk about her beautiful daughter and her kids, and so human things, really. Mm. Yeah. That's great. But I mean, you know, this is your first time experiencing yeah. the absolute madness and the breadth of the award season. Uh, yeah. Is it more intense than you thought it would be? How are you enjoying uh, it? Absolutely. It's definitely more intense. And I think it's probably super intense because I'm also filming at the same time as going through it. So, um, it's combining work, my work brain with my press brain, so running around and meeting those people and doing loads of things, but then getting back to work and getting to costume and playing character and leaving it as well. So it's a lot, uh, and I didn't know that it would be this intense. I also didn't know that it would be working on something so intense while all of it was happening. But it's definitely an experience, for sure. Yeah, are you filming the Aretha series? Is that what you're filming? Yeah, sure. Very exciting. Okay, well, I'm gonna, definitely going to circle back to that. Uh, but I'm curious, you know, what have been some of the highlights thus far of just being out, like having Harriet be out and going out and promoting it? What have been the highlights for you this season? Some of the responses that I've gotten from, from families, I've had mothers and daughters reach out saying that they've gone to see it together and then they've decided to have conversations afterwards. I had one message from someone who said that he's gone with his grandma, his great-grandma and his mother. Um, and I was like, I think his great-grandma was 100. Um, wow. So they had all seen it together. And I just, it was kind of awesome to, with the descendants of Harriet, that was uh, an amazing experience. Um, and to open the film at the African-American Museum in D.C. was like a dream. It's been really, really, really wonderful. Have you done that classic thing of going into a theater, maybe secretly sitting in the back and seeing the audience reactions live? No, not really. But whenever we've done Q&As, I always try to go in before the end of the film just so I can sort of be in the, the energy of it and watch the, the credits roll and hear the song and see the last scene. Um, just, and that's always nice because you can gauge how it's, how it's been after that. But I haven't done that yet. I haven't snapped into the theater yet. No, I mean, that's the next best thing. I will say that you did actually do that at a screening last fall I, when I uh, hosted the chat afterward. And you stayed behind and you took pictures with truly every single last person that came up to you, which I thought Aww. was very admirable. But, Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Well, you know, people don't have to give up their time. So uh, at least they can do is like, chill out and say hello and take photos with people. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, that's it's it's very sweet. I think I have to ask the obligatory question. You know, you have two Oscar nominations this year. Um, uh-huh. but is it true you were on a plane on your way to Japan on Oscar nomination morning? Yes, that's exactly true. Oh, yeah. Where were you going? What was happening? I was going to Tokyo for uh, a concert. So I had a concert there and I was doing three performances. And uh, my flight left at midnight. Um by 6 a.m. in the morning, I had fallen asleep at 6 a.m. in the morning. I woke up and realized that everyone had already like had 
the announcements and I had no idea what was going on. I had the Wi-Fi, but then I saw a little uh, Wi-Fi voucher on the table and put some Wi-Fi on my phone uh, and then all the messages started coming through after a second or two and I realized that I had been nominated. Yeah, I mean, is your phone just ringing and buzzing all day that day? (laughs) Yeah, very much so, yeah. Yeah, who were some of the folks who were reaching out to you that day? Um, Family, friends, uh, Courtney B. Vance reached out to me, Mm. Angela Bassett reached out, a few people that I didn't even know could, Kathy Bates reached out obviously as well, like I've had some really lovely people reach out, obviously my mother and my sister and my friends and all of that. Mm. I love that Kathy Bates is a recurring character in this interview. I just think she's amazing. She's one. I think she's an amazing, amazing actress. And and then having the time to have met her, I think she's super, super cool. Yeah. Well, I I have to ask too. Once you touched down in Tokyo, how did you celebrate? Like, what did you do in that moment? Oh, I went straight to work. I had a press (laughs) thing to do immediately, so I went to one of the studios, got myself ready after an eleven-hour flight, and put my makeup on and got on TV and sang. (laughs) <laughs> you're all business. One thing I'm also curious about, too, um, you know, obviously your nominations are incredible, but I was wondering if it's bittersweet at all to learn, like when you learn that you are the sole actor of color to land a nomination this year. Um, how did that yeah. feel when you realized that? Um, it, it is a bit of a bittersweet feeling because, you know, I want to celebrate being nominated and being honored in this way, but I also understand that there are so many people who also deserve to be celebrated and don't get the chance to. And I think that we have to find a way to make sure that people aren't um, left by the wayside and not given the chance to to shine. You know, I, I don't know what can be done. I don't know the complete answer, but I do think that maybe the rules need to change, the voting maybe needs to change. I don't know, but it was especially because I I wish that there are other people of color who could be celebrated too. One thing I was curious about as well, you know, you also declined to perform at the BAFTAs because of the lack of diversity. Um, yeah. I, I wish I had your statement in front of me, but yeah, I, I was wondering, has the British Academy reached out to you at all and maybe tried to open a dialogue about how things can change or just to touch base no. with you? Oh, really? No, no. Yeah, no. Oh, wow. Have you tried to reach out to them? or <laughs> It's just... That is, it's not my job to reach out to them. If they yeah. want to change things, they should start reaching out to people and uh, being the change that they see. But they, that is up to them. Yeah, well, maybe someone is listening and maybe they'll realize maybe they should do that. <laughs> but yeah, no, I was just curious because, you know, obviously that was another huge award show that had yeah. some serious missed opportunities. Um, yeah. But that's interesting. I mean, well, I'm curious to see how they change things behind the scenes themselves. Um, you and sp- Yeah. Well, speaking of performances, you are performing at the Oscars. Yeah. Are you excited? Yeah. Very excited. Yeah, very excited. Because I think before before the nominations, before all that, um, you know, it was always a dream to perform on the Oscar stage and, and to be performing my own song. It's just kind of awesome. It's just that that was a dream. So to be able to do that is amazing. Are there any past performances that you maybe watch for inspiration or anything that you've done for research? Um, I haven't watched any past uh, performances, but I have watched uh, just performances in general. Like, I just want it to feel like a moment. So I've been talking with people to find a creative for it and listening to the music and finding inspiration in that. Yeah, there's loads of things to pull inspiration from. Yeah. Well, I, I know we've been talking about the movie a lot and the award season a lot, but, you know, as mentioned previously, you have 
lots of exciting TV things in the ether. The Outsider is on HBO. It is completely mm-hmm. terrifying, but so good. <laughs> I'm obsessed I'm with it. It's really, really good. Um, but you're also working on the Aretha miniseries. Um, yeah. What can you say about it so far? Like, when did where did you actually where did you begin with the research for that? Uh, for Aretha, there's, I'm lucky because there's so much um, material on her out. So you can look at interviews, you can uh, read books, you can look at her, her videos of her performing. There's this amazing documentary, It Makes Great, uh, which I think is a really beautiful way to find out the way she interacts with the people in her life, whether it be her father, her brother, or James Stephen, who was a really close friend of hers, um, and the, the way uh, she was in the church and what gospel music meant to her and the way she would use her voice and, and there's, it, I think it's just a, a masterclass on who she might have been um, so that's kind of where you start with and then you you look at pictures you listen to audio there's so much material on her that um, it's kind of exciting to delve into Are you working with like a voice coach at all to try to get her accent right, like get her singing voice right? Like, how are you preparing? I have a, I have a, I have a vocal coach making sure that we have like some of the affectations in her voice um, as close as we possibly can. Um, but I don't have a, a vocal coach for speech. I, I have one that I call occasionally when I want to check something out, but um, it's not so much the accent that, that is uh, an issue for me. I think it's more like making sure that uh, habits uh, don't get me. Yeah. Uh, one thing that I saw while I was doing my research for this is um, you were at Clive Davis's Grammy party, and as everybody knows, they were great collaborators. Has he imparted any words of wisdom, or have you asked him about Aretha? Um, uh, he, I don't need to ask him about Aretha. He just gives me all of the uh, <laughs> information. He's so excited about the whole thing, and um, he's been really helpful and making sure that we have the music that we need and he always checks in to make sure that everything is going well. He's he's been really great with me, yeah. Yeah, I love that. In your research, were there any new things that you learned about Aretha that maybe you didn't know before and now you're sort of excited to bring that to the fore and remind people of certain aspects of her life? Um, I, it's not that I didn't know about this, but I think I've just been reminded because we're doing it and that there was a, a moment where she really was uh, trying to sing jazz, which she can do very well, but it just wasn't her. Um, so she has a lot of jazz music out, which is surreal because that isn't her genre, I guess. Yeah. Where is the show filming right now? The uh, show's filming in Atlanta. <laughs> Where all the things are filmed. Where all the things are filmed, everything. <laughs> are, you, um, are there any Aretha songs that maybe you weren't familiar with that have become new favorites in this process? So I, I knew the song, but I didn't know it very well. But Daydreaming is one of my favorites now. That's really one of my favorites to do. Yeah. Um, okay, well, is there anything that we didn't touch on that you want people to know about Harriet or the madness of award season or any of the projects that you've got coming up? Um, no, I think, I mean, the, the Outsider is a strange, wonderful thing. And, and Holly is not a character I've ever played before. I've never, I've never experienced anything like her. So I know that she's very different and I've been hearing those lovely things that from people who have never seen me do something like this. So I, I'm excited about the prospect of that and how people might receive it. Um, and I'm just really glad that we're here with Harriet. Are folks reaching out to you about The Outsider? Like, what what's the feedback you've been getting from fans? 
Um, I've been getting people uh, people are falling in love with Holly which is really great I hope they continue to do so she's a very singular odd character who I absolutely adore so I hope we'll keep feeling that way about her yeah have you gotten to spend any time with Stephen King Uh, no I haven't actually no but I do know he likes he likes what we're doing which is great all right well thank you so much Cynthia please enjoy the rest of your whirlwind week and best of luck at the Oscars and thanks so much for talking thank you so much Thank you. Have a great day. You too. Bye. That does it for this week's episode. Uh, We'll be back next week. It's going to be time for Oscar predictions, which is crazy because this is a short season and somehow it's all already wrapping up. So in the meantime, you can find us at VanityFair.com. You can find Richard Sundance coverage there, um, which is especially good this year. Um, And you can find us on Twitter at LittleGoldMen. And on our own, I'm at Katie Rich and Joanna. Joe wrote this. And Richard. I'm at Rylas, but also um, just in the spirit of Cynthia Erivo, if you have not watched the phone video of her singing I Can Do Better Than That from the last five years at Marie's Crisis a few years ago, it's one of the best videos that exists on YouTube. Uh, <laughs> and if you're feeling down or sad, watch that video. You will you will be instantly cured. Her Oscar nomination can be considered for that as well. Yes. Yeah. Um, this week's episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs. And uh, this week's award for the best description of this supersized but excellent episode goes to Richard Lawson. It's exhausting, frankly, but it's a good kind of exhausting. I'm Nomi Fry, and this week on Critics at Large, we're talking about the delights and shortcomings of the new movie Challengers. It starts Zendaya at the center of a tennis triangle and a very steamy love triangle. Who are her loyalties to? Will she be tempted by the other one? How do these guys reckon their professional playing ambition with the romantic and sexual feelings about this mysterious woman. And such we have it. We have a conflict between three people in a game meant for two. Is it a sports movie or a sex movie? Find out on Critics at Large from The New Yorker. New episodes drop every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>